Well, we know what happens with theaters in difficult areas, in cities. Art heals. It just does. And one of the reasons that the city of Washington, D.C. has been so generous with ARENA is because this really has been a forgotten quadrant in the city. It uh, is slashed through by a freeway. It's the site of one of the worst urban renewal stories in the country because 30,000 people were displaced in this area. It's one of the reasons ARENA was able to afford the land 50 years ago when it moved here. Fourth uh, Street was closed down, which caused an enormous amount of crime in this area of the city, which has just been reopened with a new Safeway and places for people to walk and talk to each other a mile away is where the new ball stadium happened. So it's the resurrection of Southwest Washington. And with having Arena Stage here, that's part of the reason why a lot of the condominiums that have been created down here are doing very, very well. It really is serving as a beacon in this area of the city. And we want to be able to do that. We want to be part of the economic engine of Southwest Washington. That was Molly Smith, Artistic Director of the Arena Stage at the Mead Center for American Theater. Welcome to Artworks, the program that goes behind the scenes with some of the nation's great artists to explore how art works. I'm your host, Josephine Reed. After more than a decade of planning and two and a half years of construction, the newly renovated Arena Stage opened its doors this autumn, just in time for the theater's 60th anniversary. And what a spectacular renovation. A winding glass building that opens up to its southwest Washington neighborhood and features a panoramic view of the river beyond it. It has spacious multi-level lobbies that are shared by the three theaters that make up the center with state-of-the-art rehearsal spaces and workshops leading Arena Stage through the planning, renovation, and reopening, as she has done for 11 years, is Artistic Director Molly Smith. Molly has been passionate about focusing Arena's repertory on American voices, American artists, and American musicals. She remains committed to developing new plays while restaging the classics. I spoke to Molly Smith in her office at the new Arena Stage. I began our far-ranging conversation about theater and new play development by asking her about an American classic. I wanted to know why she opened Arena's inaugural season in its new home with the musical Oklahoma. I wanted a musical that's about hope and optimism because I think that this moment for Arena Stage is absolutely about hope and optimism. And what was exciting to me about Oklahoma is it's about a frontier on the cusp of becoming a state. And Arena Stage is on a frontier in this moment becoming a new center. So that there's a metaphorical idea that's embedded in the musical. I also, I'm from the West. I'm a Western person. I will always be a Western person living in the East. And I wanted to bring some of the energy of the West in and the Wild West and what it was at that moment of time in 1907. Molly, you have a racially diverse cast, which usually isn't seen in productions of Oklahoma. 
We went back and did research, Janine Sobeck, who's our wonderful dramaturg here, our literary advisor, and found that Oklahoma in 1907 was extremely diverse. If you look back to, I think it was 1897 when the Great Land Rush happened, everybody was there. The Asian people were there. Indians who'd had their land taken away from them were there. White people were there. African-American freed blacks were there. And there was this tremendous land rush where everyone ran and grabbed their 160 acres of land. Now in 1907, there were African-American communities, Asian-American communities, Indian communities, white communities, but they were all separate. So in really taking the play to Washington, D.C. 2010, I wanted the play to be cross-cultural because that's where we are as a modern society. So what I did is I crossed the cultures. But within the production, if, for example, Aunt Eller has her niece, Lori, they're played by two wonderful African-American performers. Uh, Edo Annie and her father are white. Nick, because he doesn't have a parent or a child on stage who plays the role of Curly, is Latino. And so the races are all crossed within the world, and yet if there's a family relationship, it's the same race. So someone came in the other day and said, do you believe in colorblind casting? And I said, no, I don't. I understand colorblind casting. I did it years ago. It's been a part of my history for forever. But I believe that there is a problem with that with colorblind casting, because I don't think we're colorblind. I think we see race, of course. And so what I want to do is remove from the audience the, oh, if he's white and she's black and their father and daughter, what happened? Was there a white mother? Was she adopted? And so by removing that, suddenly everybody can relax and can see the production. And so you see that very clearly within this world of Oklahoma. I also really wanted a choreographer who would bring in the robustness of the West. In Alaska, when I was a, when I was a kid, there were so many barroom brawls that the next morning it wouldn't even be mentioned, which is to me what the West is. Here in Washington, D.C., we'd be talking about it forever and ever and ever on the radio shows and everything else. It was a natural part of the toughness of the life. And so we brought all that on stage. Let's talk about American musicals. You have a great devotion to it, which as a resident of Washington, D.C., I really appreciate because I like them too and I know I can count on Arena. Mm -hmm. What drew you to American musicals? I was a late bloomer. I was a convert to American musicals. It's what brought me into the theater when I was a young person, seeing Camelot with Robert Goulet in Yakima, Washington. I can remember where I was sitting in the theater. I can remember the feel of the light coming from the stage. I can remember the red plush theater seats. I remember a lot about it. And then I went to a number of small theaters in Yakima, Washington, school programs with everything from Bye Bye Birdie to West Side Story. And so my passion for the theater really came in through musicals. And I, I don't think I'm rare in that. I remember playing my mother's record of 
Oliver over and over and over again until I knew all of the songs. You know, I have really distinct memories of that. But I'm a child of the 60s. So when I was in my late teens and early 20s, I turned away from the musical as not a serious art form. I really moved into a focus on drama, a focus on contemporary writing, and I stayed there for many, many years. It wasn't until about eight years ago that I really had an epiphany and made a decision because of a number of people uh, supporting me who said, Molly, you really should be directing musicals. And I knew what musicals were doing to audiences because I produced musicals in Alaska at my theater, Perseverance Theater. I produced them here in Washington, D.C., um, but I still veered away from them. But what I saw happening to audiences is a kinetic response to the material. And I began feeling okay. This is our pure American form. I need to understand how to direct this. And so my first musical here in Washington, D.C. was South Pacific. And after two or three days within the rehearsal hall, I hopped up and basically said, oh my God, I've been such a fool because I love this form. Because it's subversive, because you can say things in a musical you can't say in a straight play because it's the music that subconsciously tracks through your brain and takes you places that sometimes the written word doesn't take you to. You know, it acts on a subliminal basis. And because I really do love the combination of music, dance, and text, there's so many things that you can say within it. And there is a way of being able to interpret the material which can make it modern. And I just became a convert. And like any convert, I'm now a revolutionary. <laughs> <laughs> and am more passionate than if I hadn't turned from the American musical. As artistic director, your job obviously is to give a vision for the theater, but for the reopening of arena stage at the Mead Center. That must have been a real challenge to think about what plays you want to present in that inaugural year. I think that beginnings are very important. The new arena will always be remembered for Oklahoma in the Fitch Handler theater space. How awful it would have been if it would have been a flop because that's what would have been remembered. The new opening for our brand new theater, the Kogod Cradle, we've opened with Marcus Gardley's Every Tongue Confess because I felt it had to be a new play. It had to be the premiere of a play. And also what's wonderful about it is it's the introduction of a promising and important voice in the American theater, which is Marcus Gardley. And let me interrupt for one second. Explain just a little bit about The Cradle, because it's also an introduction to a brand new theater at Arena. Yes, yes. There's now a third theater at Arena Stage. The Kogod Cradle is shaped like the cup of the hand. If you hold your two hands together, that when you look inside of it, that's the cradle. And that's what I talked to the architect, Bing Tom, about, and uh, Josh Dax, who was a theater consultant on it. It's a 200-seat theater space. It's a beautiful theater space, perfect size space to birth new American work 
or for first, second, and third productions. And by that I mean that oftentimes a play does not hit its full creativity until its second or third production. Because the first production, it's the play with training wheels on. Second production, you can take the training wheels off and you're in a bicycle. Third production, you may be in a hot rod because the play then is all together. And I think too often in this country we throw away new plays if they don't work well the first time, almost as if it's tissue paper. That's somebody's life for two or three or four years, and it's just gone. So I believe in new work and really knew that the two theater spaces that we had with the Fitch Handler space, which is the theater in the round, that seats 680. We have birthed new work there, but it's more complex because of A, the economics of it, and B, the expectations of the audience. Audiences expect something different in a smaller theater space. It's the same thing for the Krieger. The Krieger is a beautiful theater space. It's a modified thrust. It's almost an ideal relationship between the actor and the audience. But it seats over 500 seats. Audiences' expectations go up depending on the size of the theater space. And it's no mistake that the majority of Pulitzer Prize winning plays over the last 15 years have first been created in spaces that are 100 to 200 seats. There's a reason for that, because experimentation can be bolder. And so that's exactly what happened with Every Tongue Confess, which is about 300 African-American churches were burning in Mississippi during the 1990s. That's right, the 1990s. And this is a play that Marcus's has written for the arsonists and those that get burned. So the story is a shared story. And it's a mystery about how it happened, who did it, what it means, the ramifications of it. So that also was very important to me in the Co-God Cradle, that it needed to be a play that was distinctively American. And you have Anna DeVere Smith yes. inaugurating the Krieger. That's exactly right. Anna DeVere Smith, who's a quintessential theater artist, who creates her work through uh, interviews with hundreds of people, will be bringing in her project, Let Me Down Easy, which is about our bodies. It's about how our bodies carry us through our lives, how our bodies transform us, how our bodies fall apart, and how our bodies serve us. So she went out and did a couple hundred interviews with everybody from Lance Armstrong when he went through uh, cancer, Ann Richards. I mean, it's extraordinary, including a rodeo rider who actually has some of the most profound things to say about the body. And it also is the story of healthcare. So it's perfect for here in Washington, D.C. When you first came to Arena Stage, were you clear about your vision for the theater? Did you know you want to focus on American work, or did that evolve? The search committee 13 years ago felt as a, as a group that Arena Stage, which had been here at that point almost 50 years, had really lost some of its identity. And that's not unusual for a theater uh, to have happened to it. When it was first created, it was the only theater in the city. 
it really was a pioneer of the not-for-profit resident theater movement. And the board asked me where I would focus the work and would it be eclectic as it had been in the past or this mixture of international and national work. And that day I went into a bookstore and everything that called to me was American work. And I just began thinking, oh my God, wouldn't that be amazing to really have a theater focused on American voices, whether they be American writers or American artists. We don't have a theater of this size in the country that's specifically focused in this way. And Washington, D.C. is a crossroads for America. So the work could always be endlessly diverse. So I ran back into the second half of the search committee meeting, and I was very excited about this idea. And so then we were off to the races. And it's fair to say it's been a great success. What's been exciting about it is for years I've felt a little upset because most of my colleagues in the American theater are always looking over their shoulder at what's happening in London or what's happening outside of America. And I really think that the work that's being done in America is distinctive, it's robust, it's muscular, it's our own world. The American musical, that's our art form. It's our seminal art form. It was created by us and it continues to be innovated through us. We have brilliant contemporary writers we have a broad base of what I would call American giants, whether it's Miller, whether it's Williams, whether it's Albee. And all of these wonderful writers could converge in one new theater center. And that's what we have now at Arena Stage. I think that the difference between Arena of many years ago and now is, first of all, we are a theater center now. And that's a profound shift, moving from being a theater into a theater center. Explain the difference. I think that the biggest difference is a broad artistic strategy. And the artistic strategy is about the production, presentation, development, and study of American theater. Production, I think, is what Arena's been known for for the last 60 years fantastic productions that are created here. So we have all of our own shops on site. We have our rehearsal halls on site. For the first time, we actually have everything under one roof. We aren't split at all in the city. So there's uh, theatrical energy within all of the spaces. So that piece has to do with what we produce on stage that is purely comes from us. Could also be co-productions. The second is presentation. And this is the pillar that is about bringing in great American companies from around the country. This year, Steppenwolf is coming in with Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Looking Glass Theater is coming in with Arabian Nights. And it's also visiting local companies. So Theater J will be in with their production of The Chosen. Georgetown will be in uh, with Derek Goldman's production of a Tennessee Williams. And also, there will be a touring production, which will start its tour here, of Let Me Down Easy with Anna Devere Smith that comes out of Second Stage in New York. So having the new center gives us the potential of really being able to spotlight the best and the brightest from around the country for our Washington, D.C. audiences. 
You also put a great emphasis on development. Can we talk about American Voices New Play Institute? That institute is really about the uh, understanding, devising, and furthering of infrastructure to create new plays and new musicals. Embedded within that are national convenings that we've been having over the last two years, one on diversity, one on devised work, one on the American musical, one on black playwrights, and another area which has gained a lot of excitement around the country has to do with our resident writers program. Tell me about that program. We now have five writers on salary, playwrights, over a three-year period of time who receive a full-time salary, health care benefits, housing when they're in Washington, D.C., a resource budget that they make their own decisions on as far as the research and development of their work, and a young producer to work along with them. Each one of the writers has a full menu of work that they're writing on, not even necessarily for arena stage. Could be a play that they're going back to do a rewrite on, a new musical, a project that's uh, coming out of interviews, whatever they want and need to write. This is really a program about following the artist. And the plays that they're writing could be plays that they're writing for arena stage or for theater companies from around the country. It's completely open. So there are the five writers embedded in the program, and there are also two project residencies with Lynn Nottage and David Henry Wang, who are each writing a, a project for us. So there's that as well. There also is understudy of American theater. Um, that has to do with our community engagement program, which reaches 20,000 young people every year and has everything from the student playwrights program to Voices of Now, which is young people creating their own uh, work on stage, to an actor's gym where actors come in every Monday and work on projects that are of interest to them so that they can keep growing and developing as artists. This is for expert actors here in the Washington, D.C. area. Um, there are ongoing programs with Georgetown uh, University to the point that Georgetown is now talking about the creation of an MFA uh, in new play development for young producers. Also within the study of American theater, uh, by uh, January there will be the creation of a new play map that everybody from around the country can log on to. Explain what that is. It's a map of the United States, which will of course include Alaska and Hawaii. You can go online and be able to touch Seattle and find out all the new play development activities going on in Seattle in that moment of time. There'll be programming that'll be live streamed as well. For the first time, the American theater will see itself as far as new play development, because we'll be able to see what's happening in Minneapolis. We'll be able to track how a play might start in Dallas and move on to Washington, D.C and move on from Washington, D.C. to Minneapolis and move from Minneapolis into New York. We'll be able to track that. It's very, very exciting. So you'll be able to see how new plays are like children. It takes a village to create a new play. It often isn't just created by one group of people. Through the writer, of course, through the playwright. The playwright is really the most important artist within this world. 
but you'll see how it can be developed in one city, taken into another city with a series of readings and changes, going on to another city and having a first production, another city and a second production, and how it really grows and flourishes during that period of time. And you'll be able to see that on the new play map. It'll be useful for journalists. It'll be use for, useful for theater people all over the country. It'll be useful for educators, for students of the theater. And it'll be fun. And it will be fun. <laughs> Explain why new play development is so important to theater. Well, I think it's important because the theater is a modern art form. And modern means living. And living means writers that are creating now about this moment in time. And I think that we need to see and understand the way in which new plays are created. And we need to know what's happening in different parts of the country. We need to understand what best practices are as far as the creation of new work. We have a real problem in this country with our best writers having to leave the theater because they cannot make a living. They can't make a living. They move to television, they move to film. And I'm a great believer in working in all mediums. I think it's smart. But for us, that voice is the playwright's voice, right in the center of the theater. So if we're losing all of our best writers to other mediums and they don't come back, that's a problem for our audiences and it's a problem for the theater of the future. So finding ways to help support writers, to support directors, to support designers, and to support theater companies in this pursuit, I think is some of the most important work we can do as a theater company. Molly Smith, thank you. You're welcome. That was Molly Smith, Artistic Director of the Arena Stage at the Mead Center for American Theater. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. Adam Campy is the musical supervisor. Excerpts from The Farmer and the Cowman. Music by Richard Rogers. Lyrics by Oscar Hammerstein. From the play, Oklahoma. Sung by the cast and used courtesy of Arena Stage. The Artworks podcast is posted Thursdays at www.arts.gov. And now you can subscribe to Artworks at iTunes U. Just click on Beyond Campus and search for the National Endowment for the Arts. Next time, we turn our attention to jazz. I talk to NEA jazz master Dan Morgenstern. To find out how art works in communities across the country, keep checking the Artworks blog or follow us at NEA Arts on Twitter. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening. Thanks.